You're listening to episode 151 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast, a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing. Thank you for tuning in. In today's episode, Dr. Cornelis Venema leads us in a two-part series on justification and sanctification. This first episode deals with reformer John Calvin's view on the relationship between those two fundamental doctrines, followed by Dr. Venema's addressing the topic of the disputes of these doctrines within many Reformed and Presbyterian and broadly evangelical contexts. Here's Dr. Venema. Let's begin in this podcast with Calvin on what Calvin himself and his institutes refers to oftentimes as the duplex gratia or the twofold benefit or grace that becomes the experience of believers who are united to Christ by faith. Now, I wrote a dissertation on this topic that was subsequently published by Vandenhoek and Ruprecht under the title, Accepted and Renewed in Christ, the Twofold Grace of God and the Interpretation of Calvin's Theology. And when you get a theologian discussing his or her dissertation, it's not easy to summarize it uh, briefly, but I'll give it my best effort. I'll forego a discussion of what in my dissertation is typical namely the introductory chapter that outlines the debate. Uh, There was an ongoing debate among Calvin interpreters regarding his view of this question, but uh, I don't want to bore our listeners with too much of that detail. I'll cut to the chase. If you were to read Calvin's Institutio, which is a kind of broad summary of his theology, a companion to his uh, commentaries, he calls it a handbook, to be used alongside his commentaries as a discussion of the various commonplaces or topics of Christian theology, you'll notice that the the broad structure of Calvin's Institutes is Trinitarian, following the order of the persons and the works appropriate to the three persons of the Holy Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it's in chapter 3, or not chapter 3, book 3, of the four books of the Institutes that he takes up directly the question, having addressed the issue of man's having been created in God's image, having fallen into sin, becoming radically depraved and corrupt in all respects so as to be incapable of doing any saving good. In book two of the Institutes, he gives a a broad overview of the person and work of Christ as the one and only mediator in his threefold office as prophet, priest, and king. Then when you come to chapter 3, where he deals with the topics of justification and sanctification, he starts with a broad description of how believers, by the working of the Spirit with the Word, are brought into union with Christ. And in my view, there's been a lot of debate about that, and I'll touch on that in our second session. Calvin's uh, soteriology is framed by and is founded in an understanding that it is through union with Christ by a spirit-wrought authored faith in response to the gospel word that believers are put into Christ or united to Christ and grafted into him and become partakers of all his benefits. And so the opening section of book three is critical. The 
reality of what believers receive in terms of justification and sanctification is in consequence or on account of and on the basis, foundation of their spirit-wrought union with Christ. In fact, he uses a rather interesting, striking expression early on in book three, and it goes something like this. If Christ remains outside of us, you might say objectively in terms of his person and work, we don't come into Christ or be joined to Christ, then his work uh, is of no benefit to us. Christ's work for us must be communicated to us in terms of the application of redemption by a working of the Spirit. Now, it's at this point that Calvin argues that any believer who, through faith, by the working of the Spirit, is united to Christ, will simultaneously, this is an adverb he uses repeatedly, simul, simultaneously, receive the grace of free justification and distinguishable but inseparable from that free justification, they will likewise be regenerated, sanctified, renewed in holiness, otherwise known as sanctification. Now, I have to make a little observation here about Calvin's terminology. You see it reflected, actually, in Article 24 of the Belgic Confession. He uses the language of regeneration as a synonym broadly for sanctification, not in the more narrow sense of later reformed, more extended and technical exposition of the so-called ordo salutis. Now, I'm running ahead of the game just a little bit here when I make this observation. There are some theologians, Karl Barth, G.C. Burkhauer, contemporary theologians who will argue that the later development of the Ordo and Reformed theology represents something of a deflection from Calvin's position, uh, where Calvin doesn't really have a complicated outline of the Ordo, and therefore the language more narrowly in the way it subsequently is used of regeneration is is not found in Calvin. I won't go too far into that particular debate. Maybe I'll come to it in the second session. I think it's overstated. Just as an aside, Richard Muller, in a particularly helpful essay in a book, I think it's entitled Calvin and the Christian Life, has a whole chapter on the question of ordo salutis in terms of the broad issue of Calvin and the Calvinists. Is this another place where you find a departure in later Calvinism, early Reformed orthodoxy from Calvin on the question of the ordo? Um, That's all something of an aside. Let me cut more directly to the question of how Calvin distinguishes without separating justification. And he sometimes uses the language of regeneration, sometimes the language of repentance. He uses them typically as synonyms. He broadly defines the grace of repentance or sanctification as a restoration by the working of the Holy Spirit of the image of God in fallen sinners who are united to Christ. They are brought more and more progressively by the working of the Spirit and their working in consequence of the Spirit's work in a renewal in obedience to God's holy law, 
which is the ultimate telos of a Christian's redemption. Not that they simply be justified and regarded as acceptable to, to God in Christ because of the imputing to us of Christ's righteousness, but Calvin is very emphatic about the inseparability uh, the distinguishability he affirms, the necessary distinction between justification and sanctification, but he's equally emphatic in insisting that God doesn't justify anyone whom he brings by the Spirit through the Word into union with Christ without at the same time uh, renewing them in the way of holiness, which work of renewal will ultimately issue in perfect conformity in the state of our glorification to the image of Christ in not only being regarded by God as acceptable on account of Christ's righteousness, but also become righteous, uh, perfected in holiness. Now, let me go back to Calvin's language of a distinction without separation between justification and sanctification. He often employs the analogy drawn from the arena of Christology that just as Christ is one in his person, one in the self-same person, yet distinct in being both truly God in respect to his divine nature and truly human in respect to his human nature. So you have one person, two distinguished natures that are uh, united in the one person without separation, but as well without confusion. He uses that language and employs that analogically to the relation between justification and sanctification. We're simultaneously justified and sanctified, but they may not be confused lest the doctrine of our free justification be imperiled by suggesting that our justification in part depends upon the degree to which or the extent to which we've been renewed in holiness. Now, perhaps it would be appropriate for me now, I'm sort of going from back to front. I gave you Calvin's definition of regeneration, repentance, sanctification. Uh, I haven't really talked much about his understanding of justification. Calvin is very emphatic following Luther and the Reformation generally in insisting that the grace of what he calls often free justification, it's by sheer grace, it's entirely God's gift to us through union with Christ. Justification is a forensic. It has to do with what Calvin calls our standing in foro divino, in the divine court. What verdict pronouncement, declaration does God make respecting us when we are united to Christ through faith. He declares us to be perfectly righteous, altogether acceptable. Calvin oftentimes, and I think this is a useful uh, use of language, uh, uses the language of acceptance as a synonym for what is ours in our justification. We are accepted in Christ, and we receive the righteousness of Christ for justification such that God declares us to be even as Christ is. His righteousness is become ours through an act of imputation, 
through a granting and imputing to us of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. No righteousness of our own, no works that we might do, even relatively good works in consequence of the Spirit's operation, play any role whatever in our justification. Christ's righteousness and his righteousness alone is the singular, exclusive, sufficient, perfect basis upon which God can receive us and accept us as clothed, to use that language from the scriptures, as clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. On this point, Calvin is emphatic and perfectly clear. Uh, There is some debate, and we'll come to that again as another item in the second session, as to whether Calvin, to use the language of later Reformed theologians, would have or anticipates the idea that that righteousness of Christ is the whole cloth, seamless garment of Christ's perfect obedience under the law, both in terms of its active performance, doing what the precepts of the law require in our place, as well as his so-called passive obedience or his substituting himself, being made to be sin, suffering as the just for the unjust, that we might be brought near to God. Did Calvin teach what later Reformed theology by way of consensus teaches that both the active and passive righteousness of Christ is imputed for us in respect to our justification? The short answer to that question is yes. It's not explicit, but it's implicit in Calvin. And I'll shamelessly reference an essay I once wrote in the Mid-America Journal of Theology, which was addressing precisely that question. It's a fairly lengthy essay. It engages with some later Reformed theologians subsequent to Calvin, like Piscator and others, some of whom were divines at the Westminster Assembly, who uh, wanted to argue that the righteousness imputed to us is solely and exclusively Christ's passive obedience, so that our obligations under the law positive in obedience to its precepts has not been entirely discharged on our behalf by Christ. And that gets you into a a labyrinth, to use a lovely Calvinian term, from which there is little escape, because uh, as we'll see, It ends up suggesting that the works that faith produces play some kind of role instrumental to our justification. Christ hasn't done it all for us. Uh, Maybe I could just reference here Lord's Day 23 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which I think very clearly following Calvin uh, represents the righteousness upon which we are set to rights and found acceptable by God involves the fullness of Christ's obedience, satisfaction, uh, his entire obedience, to use an expression that was in the 39 articles of the uh, Anglican Church at one time, uh, the full obedience of Christ, so that, as the Catechism puts it, God regards us not only as forgiven sinners, not liable to the consequence, condemnation and death, that follows upon our having offended by our sins, but he regards us as those 
whose obedience, it is just as if Christ's obedience were our obedience. So rich and full is the union we have with Christ and the participation that is ours in all of his, to use an expression from the Belgian Confession, all of his holy works and merits are the ground for our justification. Now, I see that I have about three minutes left, and so I have to come to an issue that is much discussed regarding Calvin's position on justification and sanctification. Interestingly, Calvin, having argued that this twofold grace, our justification and our sanctification, become ours through faith union with Christ, and justification is the main hinge, the fulcrum of the Christian religion. It's the first of these graces. He calls justification the first benefit. He refers to sanctification as the second benefit. He does something rather unusual. It was part of the reason for my dissertation on Calvin on this question. In his treatment of these two graces, or this twofold grace, he treats sanctification first, he treats justification second. Now, why would he do that when he's called justification the first and sanctification the second? Well, he does it rhetorically to offer a persuasive case for the biblical and reformational position over against its critics, most notably the Roman Catholic Church. Why, he asks, would I treat sanctification first or regeneration repentance when it's actually second? not second chronologically, but second in terms of uh, what is most basic is our acceptance and being uh, set right and justified through the righteousness of Christ. Well, he says, I do so for a double reason. On the one hand, I want to polemicize against and ward off and repudiate the Roman Catholic complaint that the Reformation's doctrine of justification diminishes the importance of our renewal and holiness. It doesn't, says Calvin. It's impossible that you should have Christ as priest or as prophet without also through union with Christ coming under his dominion or his lordship, uh, his kingship, which is exercised by the scepter of his spirit and word. So that to separate our sanctification from justification would be tantamount to denying Christ's office as king, reducing his office merely to a priestly work of making atonement for our sin and uh, grounding our acceptance with God and the forgiveness of our sins. So Calvin says, I'm going to treat sanctification first to ward off that particular uh, complaint of the Roman Catholic Church, but there's another, and this is often missed, second reason for the order. He calls it an ordo ducendi. It's an order of teaching. It's not a theological order. It aims to make a rhetorical. And this is an aside. One of the interests of my dissertation was to show how Calvin, in terms of his rhetoric in the representation of Reformed theology, is very much uh, oriented to some classical rhetorical strategies. And so uh, he's aiming to persuade his reader that the complaint of the Roman Catholic Church is without ground, that the Reformation denies the doctrine of our sanctification simultaneously, yet distinctly, and our sanctification. But the second reason that he offers for this order 
is that it will become all the more clear why our works could never justify us. Because there are never such works, so perfect, so complete, so adequate, as to constitute any part of our confidence in God's presence. They're all corrupted through sin. We never reach perfection in this life. And incidentally, that's the reason why in historic Roman Catholic teaching where sanctification and justification are basically confused, and justification is really eliminated altogether from the gospel and converted into an actual process, as it's called, of justification. Because we're not perfectly holy in this life, the Roman Catholic Church insists that with the exception of those who are perfect, the saints, all believers can never have a full confidence in God's presence because they're never fully righteous. And without such righteousness, who can be in God's presence found acceptable? Well, Calvin says, uh, as, as I unfold the doctrine of regeneration, repentance, sanctification, it'll become altogether clear that though believers are never justified without also being simultaneously sanctified, it's quite impossible that the works, imperfect, that Christians genuinely perform by the working of Christ's Spirit could ever be a part of or be regarded as a partial ground, if not the only ground, for our acceptance with God. So that's the reason for his order. And I think it's a it's an order that, of course, historic Lutheranism has often uh, worried about, and it gives rise sometimes to the accusation from the Lutheran side and post-Reformation polemics that the Reformed uh, were being a little too cozy with the law and its uh, claims, and Calvin betrays uh, a loss of Luther's sense of the centrality and the uh, urgency and ultimate significance of our justification. And I'm a Reformed theologian, so I'm allowed to be a little polemical in response to that complaint. Uh, the the Reformed response and Calvin's response would be, it's a reductionistic view of the gospel, frankly, to exclusively focus on the main hinge, to be sure, which is our free justification. It reduces the reach of Christ's accomplishment and the communication of the benefits of his grace to believers to not give special attention to the grace of sanctification, uh, keeping them distinct, necessarily so, vitally important that they be distinguished, but not separating them. And I think, as I'm going to argue in the second session when we take up some contemporary discussions on justification and sanctification, that the Reformed are in a better position uh, following Calvin, and it's represented as well in the Confessions, to not fall into the trap either of a kind of legalism or moralism. Our works are in part what save us or contribute somehow to our salvation, Uh, And on the other hand, a kind of um, antinomianism. The Reformed are as worried about and opposed to antinomianism as they are to a confusing of God's grace in justification and in sanctification. 
Tune in next week as Dr. Venema addresses some of the assaults on the doctrine of justification, such as federal vision and antinomianism. For more podcast episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.